down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of changing the world and changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 533 of the Survival Podcast. It's October 18th. October 18th. Won't be long, folks. Won't be long at all. Little kids will be going trick-or-treat. A little bit longer after that, slicing a turkey. A little bit longer after that, Christmas time. What does that mean? It means winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming, folks. Be good little ants. Get ready. Trust me. Uh, time is marching on. It doesn't really matter that it's winter. All that matters is that time is marching on. And watch how time will seem to accelerate through what's a really pretty good time of the year, honestly, as far as I'm concerned. But it leaves us with the long, cold winter after all the festivities are over. Hope you're getting prepared. On that note, today is a Monday. That means we have your questions, comments, commentary, article submissions, etc. by email today. If you'd like to have your question or your uh, article or anything like that featured, no matter what it is, put in the subject line, question for Jack. Question for Jack. Email that to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And I will do what I can to try to get your question on the air. I'll tell you right now, about 10 to 20% of what's submitted gets on the air due to volume alone. Uh, but I do do my best, and when I get the same thing from four or five people, or the same question from four or five people, kind of moves us to the head of the line. A little bit of a democratic process there. Before we get into your questions, comments, and commentary today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Shelf Reliance. Notice I said shelf, not self. Shelf Reliance is an innovative company in the realm of food storage and food rotation. Uh, check out their consolidator uh, food rotation products and their harvest food rotation products. Really great equipment. I got a couple of videos up on YouTube you can check out with me reviewing their equipment. They also do long-term storage food and a lot of other really great stuff. Check out shelfreliance.com. They can really help you out with your prepping needs. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful, in the words of the audience, over and over and over again, I get that, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont, who does such a great job of making sure that he, she takes care of her customers. Folks, I'll tell you what, Christmas is coming, Thanksgiving is coming, those times when all the little kids that you are related to but you don't see that much show up, and there's a tendency to buy them lots of plastic-made crap from uh, China, Why don't you put silver dollars in those little hands this year, silver rounds in those little hands this year. Teach them about sound long-term value. I know that's what we've been doing with our kiddos when they come around for the holidays and just in general. You know, money is being eroded in value. Silver is continuing to appreciate in value. And there's some really cool, really cool things available at silverandgoldshop.com for both your personal portfolio and to put in the hands of a young one and say, hey, 10 years from now you're really going to get this. But for now, just hang on to it. And they like them now, man. When I hand one on my knee, she bounces. All right, next up, check out the gear shop. We do have the custom-designed trekkers. Um, I've talked Tiffany into keeping the orders open until Wednesday. Wednesday, the orders will close forever and a day. 
After that, you will not be able to order any. We've had over a hundred ordered so far. Uh, we'll order about 10% over. Right now, that would be 10. And uh, that's going to be it. And they're going to be gone. So I would get one before Wednesday because you're either going to pay more or never get one ever. Uh, the Trekker knives are really cool. Uh, check out my post on the blog. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that. I'll remind you guys on the email list about that probably today or tomorrow. I don't want people to be like, man, I wish I would have got one because I'm telling you, that's how you're going to feel. These are really awesome Swiss Army knives. Um, we're selling them under retail. Plus, on top of the fact that they're under retail, we're selling them with a custom engraving, custom year, and a limited edition run. So uh, it's really a great product. Check that out and uh, consider getting one good Christmas present, too. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, I also want to remind you real quick about our special show coming up, episode 550. I need your calls, folks. I need you to call in. Tell me what prepping and survivalism, the survival podcast on our forum and our community has meant to you. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your uh, your questions by email. The first one's an easy one. I, I talked recently about the fact that as dogs get older, especially hunting dogs, they have trouble. Um, you know, I want you to think about this. A hunting dog is kind of a professional athlete. They really are. The way that they work, and any kind of working dog is like a professional athlete. And then your normal everyday dog that we just have around the house, he's not immune to arthritis either. Uh, but I'd mentioned that we had a hunting dog that as he got to where he really couldn't hunt anymore, or if he did, he was so sore, we didn't want to take him. We started giving him vitamin C based on an article that I had seen in Outdoor Life magazine, and it extended his hunting career by a couple years, and it made him more comfortable even when he couldn't hunt anymore. And uh, I got a question here from Mike. Mike says, I was wondering what kind of vitamin C you give your dog. My friend's dog is getting old and has arthritis, and I will and want I want to try it. Uh, thanks, Jack. Mike. Um, I give our dogs uh, a 500 milligram vitamin C tablet every morning, and our older dog, who actually is sore, he gets a second one in the evening. Uh, vitamin C is a very safe supplement to give dogs, to give humans, to give anything. It's almost impossible to OD on vitamin C. Uh, excess vitamin C is simply excreted in your urine. As for what kind, I don't really worry about that very much. I do like to use chewable vitamin Cs, though, and I'll tell you why. Because I know it's going to break down fully and be absorbed. Even if you put it in a piece of cheese to give it to a dog. Or crumble, and what I really like about the, the chewable C's is they can be crumbled into their food very, very easily. They come apart very easily. All vitamin C is is absorbic acid. And there's not a hell of a lot of difference from one vitamin C product to the next. There's, there's certain supplements out there that you really have to look at different versions of to get your body to absorb them or get a body to absorb them in the case of a dog. Um, but vitamin C is pretty, pretty daggone universal. Um, there's, you know, you can do with rose hips and all this other stuff, but what it comes down to is putting vitamin C into the system. And, uh, I don't even remember the mechanics of why this works for dogs with sore joints, but it does. That's all I can tell you. You take a dog that, that's sore and you start giving him vitamin C and he's less sore. Um, again, this was an article in Outdoor Life magazine that I read as a teenager, told my uncle about it. We said, let's try it with Brit. Uh, or Brittany Spaniel, real original name I know, and uh, it worked for him, and it's it's really helped Blackie. He's an old dog now, and he doesn't get around as good as he used to, but uh, the vitamin C does help him out. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, this one comes and uh, says basically, uh, this is an interesting financial question. Uh, should we continue to pay on our 401k or use that money to pay off our mortgage? 
And this guy gives me background, and this is a great, you know, this is a, folks, that you guys that want your questions answered, this is how you do it. Question, right? One to two sentences, then the background information. I'll just be screen faster. So the background says, wife and I are currently working on two years into a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 5.875% on a house with six acres we intend to die in. It is truly our dream place in a very rural area. The local town has a population of only 2,400. We're completely debt-free except for the mortgage. We have a late-model diesel truck and a brand-new car, both paid for cash. Current mortgage payment is about $960 on a $150,000 balance. Starting last month, we are applying an additional $900 to our mortgage payment. We have over six months of funds and savings, cash on hand, and prepping well underway. Two is one, one is none, and since I don't like having one of anything, I have three. <laughs> I like that. Uh, other than property taxes, our expenses here are very low. We can add additional $500 to our mortgage payoff per month if we suspend my wife's 401k contributions, which the wife is currently, which the company is only matching 10%. I do not have a 401k. This would bring our mortgage down from 8.9 a year uh, to 6.6 year payoff. We'd appreciate one man's opinion on this matter. Okay, most financial experts will tell you, oh no, never stop contributing to your 401k. Oh God, no, not that. Anything but that. Dear God, what, what do you, stop. Stop contributing. It's 10%. Is 10% is good money on any money. But again, you put money in a 401k, we're putting money into a highly regulated environment. And she's been contributing to it for a while. I guess she got some money in there. Um, I'm not real excited. I, I think we see, we're going to see some uptick in the stock market, but not enough to make it worth risking all your retirement money anyway. So you've just got money sitting there you're going to be conservative with, or you can put it into your house. And you can get that house paid off in six point six and a half years. Six and a half years, it really will go by like that. It'll just, I mean, and once that's done, let's add up the money, okay? So we have uh, a payment of nine sixty, and we've been doing an additional nine hundred. All right, well that's eighteen hundred and sixty dollars. We're gonna add five hundred dollars to that. What do we come up with? Twenty three hundred and sixty bucks. Is that right? Twenty three sixty. So 6.6 years from now, you can start contributing $2,300 a month to whatever savings or investments you want. And we'll probably have a lot better of an idea of the way things are going and where to put that money then. And it might be that you want to put that money in your pocket then. It might be you want to invest in something I don't know. But I say pay the house off. Only because you have money put away, you have a six-month emergency fund, you already have money in the 401k, uh, your expenses are low, and you know why you're doing what you're doing. If you were not solid like that, I don't know that I would firmly make the same recommendation, but in your situation, totally, totally comfortable making that recommendation for you. And the only thing I would point out is that as you're paying the house down during this period of time, and you have two incomes into the family, um, and you're not putting money into a 401k that can be pulled out in an emergency, and you're not, you know, if it's in, once in this house, it's equity and it's gone, there's no more expense. But the one danger, the one danger in this is one of you dying in the next six years before the house is paid off, and a little bit after until you can start pitching money into savings again. So what I would say is regardless of what life insurance you have now, since you probably allocated that based on your, your expected needs, Consider a cheap 10-year term policy on the both of you 
during the period of time you're doing this for enough money to more than pay off any existing balance on the house, take care of additional expenses and things like that, and compensate for the fact that that in second income is not going to be there anymore to generate that money going forward. So, you know, that's based on your income level and all. You might have enough. You might have be sitting on million-dollar term policy. Some people are, and when you're really young, you can get, you know, term to 90 with a million dollars for, like, dirt cheap. So that makes sense. But if you don't have good, solid life insurance or if... <clears throat> If you analyze this and say, based on making this change, not having this nest egg, etc., if we lose one of us to, you know, because I know you're young and healthy probably and think you're bulletproof, but driving down the road, gravel truck smash, one of you guys check out, you might want to look at upping the uh, the insurance level just a little bit during that period. But uh, other than that, pay off the house. You won't regret it. I'll tell you that right now. Um <clears throat> Next question. I'm going to try to do a lot of questions today without going into them deeply to get through more questions on a Monday since there are so many questions. Um, Jack, question for, for the many of your, your new listeners might benefit from. What exactly is mulch and how do you make it? You're always mentioning mulch. Cover with four inches of mulch. Add mulch to your beds. Mulch this and that. A lot of folks think it's the red bark stuff that, uh, a suburbanite puts around bushes and trees to make their property nice and neat. Obviously, it's more than that. Perhaps a few minutes describing exactly what you mean would be helpful. Well, the suburbanite red stuff that they put around their house is mulch. It's just one type of mulch. It's like saying that, you know, beer is, all beer is Budweiser. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's really what it would be like. If you look at, you know, just the decorative mulches used in landscaping, that's like Budweiser. And then we have like a billion beers. I mean, all these great, fantastic microbreweries that are out there all doing their own little unique styles and things. And they all have their own nuances. They all have things that, you know, a Budweiser's fine on a hot day cutting the grass, but it doesn't really go well with a big steak. Your steak just crushes it. So you need something a little bit more hops and things like that. Well, think about gardening the same way. When you put mulch out in those landscaping environments with that red stuff, you just want it to look nice and keep weeds down. In your garden, you want it to look nice. You want it to keep weeds down. You want it to keep moisture, uh, retain moisture in your soil because maybe you want to be more water conscious. You want it to be biodegradable and break down and continue to add nutrients to your soil. So what is mulch? It's anything that you put on top of the soil that's biodegradable, that breaks down, and it provides additional nutrients to your plants. Some people have said not to use wood mulch because it takes up too much nitrogen. I've busted that myth. Use all the wood mulch you want. Maybe add an, a, a bit of a, additional supplemental nitrogen initially when you first start using wood mulch. And after that, once you build a fungi net, uh, and a fungi net is, folks, if you, I mean, I should do a video on this. If I go out to my garden and I pick up the, the, the wood chipping mulch in my garden, I can pick it up in big chunks now, big pieces, right? And it's like, but it's, it's, it's breaking down, but yet it's all clumped together. And if you pull the little pieces apart, there's this white, uh, fungal growth all through it. That's the fungus. The teeth of the forest is the fungus eating the wood, converting it to soil. So it could be leaves, it could be anything. One of the best investments you can make if you own a large piece of land with lots of trees and branches and things that you're cutting and stuff like that is a good quality shredder, tripper shredder. And shred and chip and shred and chip. The big difference between mulch and compost, mulch, we just take it in its natural state, we put it on the soil. Compost, we break it down and turn it into the soil. Or put it on top of the soil and then put mulch on top of the compost. Either or. But uh, compost is broken down, mulch is all organic matter that, that is suitable for use in your garden. 
And it can be straw, it can be hay, it can be wood chippings, it can be shredded leaves. Oak leaves are great. Uh, you get oak leaves and put them through a shredder or run them over with a lawnmower and use that mixed in with the rest of your mulch. I wouldn't use it just by itself. The problem with oak leaves by themselves is they matte. So much my short answer, huh? Uh, oak leaves, when you put them together and they're like, there's nothing else in there to break them up, they kind of form like a mat. You know, and they, they almost become like, like, um, like shingles. They interlock with each other and they become slimy and then they solidify and they actually, water will hit them and run off. So if you have mixed it with sticks and other things and dirt and stuff like that and you use that, you're going to get kind of some space in between them. But as they break down, they'll form leaf mold, which is different than wood mold and, and wood fungus. Is it. And that is a great uh, soil enhancer. So mulch is simply anything that you cover your soil with. And what you really are looking for is an organic mulch that's biodegradable and eventually will become, instead of mulch, the soil itself. And as you keep at, so you, you know, you go out there and you put up at the beginning of your season four inches of mulch. And then you come back at the end of the season and, and there's maybe an inch left if you haven't been mulching in between. And you look at that and go, oh, it must have washed away. Well, if you're using raised beds and you're using a good solid mulch and all, it didn't go away. It broke down and went into the soil, and it enriched your soil and increased its organic matter. So there you go. Uh, next one, question on peak oil. This comes from Jason. I've heard that in the last decade or so, most oil wells drilled in the US, on U.S. soil have been capped and not pumped. Is this true, and how it will affect the U.S. for peak oil? The following article would tend to support that the U.S. is not capping its drilled oil wells. How do you see China purchasing one-third of South Texas oil and gas field affect peak oil or the global economy, Jason. Okay, first of all, the, the concept that there's just all this oil out there, and all these greedy oil companies took billions of dollars, drilled holes deep into the earth, set up a pump, turned it on, oil came out of it, and they could have just kept pumping it, and pumping it, and pumping it, and pumping it, and then they just decided, you know what, Let's cap this and not pump this oil and sell it to the market. Let's just sit on it. It is utter freaking nonsense. You have no idea how much money, if you believe that, you have no idea how much money it costs to put in enough wells to start pumping an oil field. How much the drilling costs, how much the exploration costs, how many times out of, you know, 10 that you drill for oil, you don't find oil. Now, where's the, most myths have their root in, in, in fact. What is the root of this myth? One is that not that long ago, seems like forever ago, but not that long ago, oil went down, way, way down to like, oh God, it was, I, I'm, I want to say a number, I don't even remember if I'm remembering this right. I know it floated at 20 for several, several years in the 90s, but I think it actually dropped momentarily to like 10 bucks, and there was a period in time between that drop and, and coming back up to 20, where there were some oil wells that they just said, hold, let's hold production back, right? Because if you're producing something that costs you, I don't know, let's say it costs you 50, at the time $15 a, a barrel or $15 a, 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 $15 a barrel to get out of the ground and it's selling now for 10, you're better off sitting on your thumbs. So 
when oil dropped, there was some reduction in, in, in production. There may have been some wells capped during that period of time, too. And there's also, this is another thing that people don't get. When you pump oil, you, you first put the, 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 the stuff in the ground, and you start pumping, and it just flows, man. It flows, and then the easy oil's gone. And then you start having to pump salt water down in there, and then the salt water floats the oil up, and then you can pump some more, and it gets harder and harder and harder to extract. So there are some fields out there where there's still oil. Uh, the wells are capped. But the reason they're not pumping it is it ain't worth the money it takes to get the oil out of the ground anymore. And those that think that, well, we can just go back and start pumping that when oil goes way up, and, and that'll save us from peak oil, but understand, there's not much there in the grand scheme of things. There's not much there at all. So that that's kind of the source of that myth. But if you think that oil companies just run around at random, putting oil wells in all over the place, and then just don't pump our oil... Uh, you also got to think about this. People were whining about this when oil was $20 a barrel, when gas was a dollar to a dollar twenty a gallon. And people were, if they would just pump U.S. oil. It's a myth. As far as the Chinese buying into the uh, South Texas oil field, I've talked about that before. Um, it's just that there's not enough value in gas. It's, there's a lot of gas in that field, too. It's There's as much as more money in gas in that field, in that range, uh, in that shale, than there is in oil. And the Chinese are doing it because they know long-term it'll pay off, and they can afford the long-term risk right now. The other thing is they're looking for expertise. See, the Chinese have buttloads of gas and oil, too. But they don't know how to get it out of the ground when it's in the shale. They just don't know how to get it out. So part of what they're looking to do is, in addition to being a financial partner here and getting a financial return, is gain knowledge. How does the South Texas oil field China buy affect the, the peak oil? It doesn't have anything to do with peak oil. It really doesn't. It's just, it's just another indicator that we in the U.S. are more dependent on foreign government. How does it affect the global economy? Short term, it doesn't really affect the global economy in any negative way. If anything, it helps create more cheap energy short term. So short term, it's helpful. And when I say short term, we're talking 15 years here. So, you know, it's, it's not the big catastrophe some people have made it out to be. Um, in the grand global scheme of things. For America, it's bad news because it's once again us having to bring in foreign money in just to get business done. And it's not just the Chinese that have bought in there. I think we've brought the Germans in there. I think uh, I think Italians have come into that. I know French have come into that. There's That's a multinational thing going on down there. Uh, little pieces here, little pieces there. China just bought the biggest stake outside of domestic ownership, though. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. This one says, uh, Steve says, great show, changed my life forever, really. Here's my question. I have about 20% of my net worth in precious metals. I want to sell a portion of this and purchase a grid-tied battery backup solar system with cash. I think this is a good way to diversify. I want to take advantage of the higher precious metal prices as well. I purchased my PMs about a year ago. Should I do this or should I hold on to my PMs? Please advise. Steve, I would absolutely, if that's what you want, do it. I mean it. I would absolutely cash in your gold and silver um, especially if you're looking at you have 20% of your wealth there and you want to cash in half of it. Well, that's going to leave you with 10% of your wealth there. And, you know, hopefully that's enough. I mean, if you're going to wipe it out, if you're going to be down to zero, I, you might want to cash in 15, you know, 15 of the 20%, hold five in reserve and finance that last little piece. I, I would be okay with leverage debt for that purpose since, you know, it seems that you're debt free every other way. Um, 
So I wouldn't wipe it out. But if you sold up to 15% of it, fine. Because as soon as you do this, right, you have this big outlay of cash, but then you have this, this massive reduction in your energy costs that lasts for 25 years with proper upkeep before you have to really replace the major components, maybe 15 before you're looking at replacing the batteries and things like that. Um, and you take all of that savings and you just take your monetary savings from, uh, from energy and start rebuilding your precious metals with it. I also, th I keep saying this guys, gold, I'm iffy on gold right now. I know I said it was iffy when it was at $1,100 and now it's like almost $1,300 and you know, I was wrong, but no, I'm not wrong because I'm telling you, I don't try to call the tops of things. I try to call the kind of the point where we start to enter the bubble space. And I say once we're in this like boom where everybody says to get in, This is when you get your ass kicked if you jump in now. So silver, I've said, is a safer play. You would have been fine with gold over the last two years. Even though I said silver was safer, I still said buy some gold, but be careful with, with gold. Uh, now I'm entering the phase of gold where it looks like it's a good time. to. If you know what you want to do with your profits, it's a good time to do some profit taking. It really is. Um, if you feel that you know you need more gold, you can always buy more gold. You can always convert cash. To, this is assuming you have a portfolio and you don't just just have gold, uh, which I think is a mistake anyway. You can always convert some more cash to gold. People will always be happy to sell it to you. You know, it, it, it might cost you more money, but especially with this though, we have a long-term investment, and I see the investment in energy production to be as good or better than gold long term because it's going to provide it for you right as long as i hold gold i'm hedging against inflation i'm hedging against the economy falling apart i'm hedging against the currency collapse and i have money i can spend if i want to spend it but it, it, as it sits there right this is the thing about going overboard with pms as it sits there it doesn't actually do anything I, I don't get anything out of it. I can't go break a piece off and eat it every day. In fact, it would kill me if I did, because both silver and gold are toxic heavy metals. For those of you that think you're going to cure your every injury in the world with with uh, with colloidal silver, it's a toxin. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail now, but silver is a toxin in the body. It doesn't belong in your body. It has some antiseptic and antibiotic purposes, but consuming it doesn't make sense, right? So you can't consume it. Doesn't produce energy. Just sits there. But if we put this electrical system in and the grid fails, I still have power. If the grid doesn't fail, I, I have this huge section of power now that I'm not paying for. So I highly endorse your decision because it sounds like it's what you want. If somebody emails me and says, oh, I have 20% and I'm not going to do it, fine. Keep your 20% and press your metals. I'm okay with that. This is what this guy wants. So that's why I'm making that recommendation. Let's take the next one. Um, next one here comes from Robert. Robert says, hey, might seem like a stupid question. Robert, there are no stupid questions. Um, how do you organize a chest freezer? We had a chest freezer, and it seems like everything is just piled in. Uh, then things just get buried on the bottom and forgotten about. Is there a good way to keep a chest free freezer organized and rotated? Yes, you need to get some type of boxes or containment systems that are safe in your freezer. Uh, we like to use these kind of metal basket things that you get at Home Depot that are really for like storing stuff under your cabinets and all. And you put your, all your foods into these little metal things, right? And then whenever you come home with new food for your freezer, you take one of the metal things out, all the way out, and you take another one out and you set it on the floor next to the freezer until you get to the bottom. And then you fill up the bottom one. If the bottom one has a little bit in it, you take the stuff out, put the new stuff on the bottom, put the old stuff back on the top, and you put your two baskets back in. When your top basket becomes empty, 
right? You pull your two other baskets that are now full of food out, you put that one into the bottom, and all your it takes more work initially, right? When you come home, you don't just throw it in the freezer. But what happens then is all your oldest food is on the bottom, all your newest food is on the top, and you organize your food kind of in lines. Right, so we have like about five of these things across in our freezer. So we have like chicken, vegetables, beef. Now we don't do like steak, roast, whatever, but all the beef is in a line, all the pork is in a line, and we do that. And that makes it a lot easier. It's not perfect. It's one of the reasons that I actually like the organizational side of a, uh, you know, a stand-up freezer better. It's easier to manage. But a chest freezer is just far more energy efficient, especially if you're getting stuff out of it often. If you're not getting stuff out of it that often, you can do a stand-up freezer. Not that big a deal. Um, but if you are, you know, if you are constantly eating what you store, storing what you eat, and making your frozen foods part of that, and we do, and you're out there once a day opening that thing up, then when you open up that, that stand-up freezer, that cold air just falls out. Literally, you know, when air is colder, it gets heavier. So when you open, that's why when you open a refrigerator, right, it feels like the cold air is just flowing at you. What's happening is it's falling. Warm air is going into the top and pushing it out. And as it gets pushed out, you feel the cold air feels great. A hot day, open a refrigerator to get a beer, and you feel that cold air hit you. But that's all your energy being lost. When you open um, a chest freezer, that hot air kind of sits on top of the cool air. You don't lose it. That's why it's more energy efficient. That's how I rotate uh, our food. Uh, next question comes to me from Lensey. Lensey, L-E-N-D-S-E-Y. Lensey says, "What the hell is up with all the talk about zombies? People can't really believe zombies are going to get us, are they? I'm just curious and can't get a straight answer anywhere. Love the show and thanks for what you do, Lensey. Uh, it sounds to me like you've probably gone to some of these forums and asked about it and got all kinds of um, screw with you answers. This is the nicest way I could put it, right?" Uh, here's the deal with, I mean, you hear about this, the zombies are coming, the zombie bikers are gonna get you. Zombies are used as a catch-all phrase for anything that could cause the shit hit the fan and the end of the world as we know it. And zombies are used to delineate that segment of society that would become complete aggressive scum and go out and take from everybody else. Sometimes zombies are just that. They're just zombies and nobody really believes in them, but they're fun to talk about and horse around with. But but in the survival world, it's become a catch-all phrase for the hordes, right? The attack, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of us just have an affinity for crappy B-zombie movies, right? And by B-movies, I mean, you know, second-tier crappy movies that are about zombies eating our brains. So we have this group of people that all prepare for the end of the world as we know it, and we have this this, this scapegoat in the zombie, and it's just a joke. And then maybe there's a few of us that are a little bit retarded and think they're really coming, but I think most of us understand it's just a joke, man. That's all it is. And it's also a way to feel less, um, I guess, malicious when you talk about having to defend yourself in this period of time. It's a way to bring some humor to something that's not funny at all. It's a way to feel better about looking into the abyss. So if we talk about the zombies attacking and we have to wipe out the zombies like they do in those B-movies by shooting them in the head, it doesn't sound as bad as saying, well, if... Um, if we're attacked and it shit at the fan, we have to use lethal force to defend our home. 
And at some levels, that's what people are really talking about. So some cases, it's just complete joviality. In some places, it's, it's some humor brought into a serious, uh, actual, legitimate threat. And um, so there you go. That's the deal with zombies. Uh, next one, here comes from Eric. Eric that sends me all kinds of cool stuff. Probably sends me way too much stuff, honestly, but they're all good. So, hey. Um, this one says, interesting story. I'd like to hear your take on it. And what it's talking about, this is from the AP. It's out on Yahoo. It's a short article, so I'll just read it to you. Wholesale prices tame beyond volatile food and energy. Uh, Washington, the AP. Wholesale inflation stayed last, stayed tame last month outside the sharp rise of food and energy prices. Moderate price, price inflation allows the Federal Reserve to keep the short-term interest rate it controls at a record low nearly zero, where it has been since 2008 of December. Low inflation also makes it more likely the Fed will launch another effort to lower long-term rates by purchasing treasury bonds when it meets next November 2nd and 3rd. Why are they meeting on November 3rd? Election, yeah. The producer price index, which measures price changes before they reach the consumer, increased by 0.4% in September. The Labor Department said Thursday it rose by an equal amount in August. Excluding volatile food and energy costs, core producer prices only rose 0.1% in September from the previous month. That rise was driven by higher car and truck prices in the past year. Core prices have risen only 1.6%. So in the past year, we've only had 1.6% inflation on the core producer, the core price index, all right? Core inflation. But we're excluding volatile food and energy, all right? Let's hold that in reserve. I just want you to think about that before I read the rest of this. Um, at 1.2%, per- a 1.2% rise in food prices and a half percent rise in energy prices drove the price index up. By the way, that's over the month, not over the year. So while they said we only had 1.6 for the year, right? We had a 1.2 rise in the month and a half percent rise in energy for the month of September. Wholesale prices have increased 4% in the past year. The cost of meats, fresh vegetables drove the increase in food prices. A weak economy is keeping a lid on prices. Fugal consumers are seeking out discounts and balking at higher costs. This has made it harder for producers to raise the prices they charge for retailers. In addition, high unemployment is keeping paychecks low so consumers can't afford to spend more. Wholesale prices fell for three straight months in the spring and early summer. That stokes fears of deflation, a widespread debilitating drop in prices, wages, and the value of homes and investments. But the recent increase in the producer price index have eased those concerns. The Federal Reserve officials saw odds small on deflate only small odds of deflation at a meeting last month, according to the minutes released on Tuesday. Okay. So, what does Jack keep telling you? Your government, the Federal Reserve, and most of America are betting on inflation. There's what you just heard. They want prices to go up. They can't stand to see prices go down. They'll tell you inflation is low, but they don't tell you inflation is in reverse, because that is a disaster for a fiat-based economy. Now, my take on this, why is this thing being held? Well, the article, actually, for a change, does a great job of explaining it, but let's go further. Um, there's a lot of Americans out of work right now. Lots of us. And I don't mean to demean anybody here. I don't want anybody that's actually out of a job to, to, to think that I'm even talking about them for the next minute or two. But then there's this entire segment of America that are acting like retards. All right? And they really are. They're acting like frickin' retards. And 
if they're saving some money, that's not retarded. If they're buying less crap, that's not retarded. But the attitude is retarded. And I don't mean to offend anybody that's actually got the medical problem of retardation, whether it's growth or ment mental, but retarded is the only way I can say this and, and still be halfway nice about these what these people are doing. And here's what I mean. I talk to people every day, every day, that tell me how hard things are. Man, tough, time's tough, right? God, I mean, you know, it's really hard to get by, make ends meet, whatever. And I'm like, well, do you own a business? Because I know most businesses in te North Texas are actually doing pretty good. And, and they say, no, I have a job. Did you lose your job? No. They cut your pay. No. What the hell are you talking about then? Well, you know, my house is only worth half of what it used to be. Do you want to move? Well, not really. Did your house payment go up? No. Did you have a baby? No. Okay, so your expenses have stayed flat. Your income has remained constant. And times are tough. Why? Because the TV tells them it's tough. So there are a lot of spending decisions right now that are being made by people who would normally spend money if the TV would just tell them times were good. And this is retarded. Now, if they've waken up and said, I will pay off debt, I will not buy useless crap, I will take control of my expenses, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you, for the level of repression and spending that we're seeing in this nation, that, that many people haven't woken up. And it's not that many people have lost jobs. There's a lot of people lost, again, I'm not talking about the people that lost jobs. You know, the people that are really actually struggling. A huge piece of the curtail in spending is being done by people who are behaving like retards because the TV told them times are tough. So people love to be victims and they've decided they're a victim and times are tough. So I gotta, I gotta be cheap. Long term, that's good for them. If they stay that way. The problem is it's like putting a band-aid on a wound that's bleeding internally. And externally. Okay, you stop the external bleeding. It seems to look better. Also, the yarn turns purple. All the bleeding's going on inside. You can hemorrhage out while no blood comes out. And this is what I mean by that. These same people, as soon as the TV tells them times are good, and this is why I'm forecasting the false recovery, all that money that they've accumulated while times were tough, instead of seeing it for what it really is, a godsend, And waking up from being acting like retarded zombies. There's a great one. Retarded zombies. That's what they're... Duh. Times are tough. They put the money away. Uh, times are good. I can spend the money now. And they go out and act like drunken sailors on payday. And all of that money will go right back in. And you will see the lid come off inflation. That's what I see here. As far as why it's being held in check right now, it's a variety of things. It's everything the article said, plus the effects of the retarded zombie Americans who are insisting that they are part of the suffering that's going on right now when they haven't had a major increase in cost or a major decline in income. And the majority of Americans have not. I know that's counterintuitive. I know that's going to challenge you today. But let's say that 25% of America has lost a job, right, or has had a decline in income. Well, 75% have it. Now, make sure you understand something. I'm talking about people that work in the first place. If you, if it's a person that's drawing off the, 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 the government tit of welfare and always has and was born into it and never won't, then they don't go into this equation. Of working Americans, of people who had a job in 2005, if 25% lost a job or had an income reduction or both, 
75% have not. If it's 30, 70% have not. If it's 35, 65% have not. I'm telling you, whatever that number is, the majority of those people are not behaving the way they were before the recession, even though they have not been directly affected. And it's not the majority of that group have not woken up They're acting in fear. And the problem with fear is as soon as they take your fear away, you start behaving like your typical retarded self again and blowing all your money and spending money on credit cards and everything else like that. Uh, there's some deeper things with the monetary contraction, but we'll save that for another show this week. Um, the next one also comes from Eric, but like Eric just digs into so much. And, and a lot of people have sent me stuff about this. This is about the hiccup in the mortgages that's going on right now. Uh, headline, and this is off uh, the Washington Post, Lack of pay proper mortgage paper trail could leave big banks reeling again. Federal government's pressure on lenders Wednesday to fix the paperwork problems plaguing foreclosures left unaddressed far greater potential threat facing the financial system in the United States economy. Beyond sloppy documents, the foreclosure debacle has exposed one of Wall Street's little-known practices. For more than a decade, big lenders sold millions of mortgages around the globe at lightning speed without properly transferring the physical documents that prove who legally owns the loans. Now some of the pension systems, hedge funds, investors that took big losses on the loans are seeking to use this flaw to force banks to compensate them or even invalidate the mortgage trades themselves. Their collective actions, if successful, could blow a hole through the balance sheets of big banks and raise a fundamental question about the financial system, financial analysts and lawmakers said. You want to read the rest of this article, you can. Let me tell you what basically they're saying. So I manage like a pension fund for Jack Corporation and there's 10,000 people, including you, that work for Jackco. And we have this pension fund we put aside for you, and we put money in every month. Maybe we let you put some money into your own pension fund if it's an old-style one or it's just an employer-contributed one. And because there's you know 10,000 employees and a lot of people have been here a long time, eventually we build up to a point where there's an awful lot of money in that pension fund. Now, a lot of Americans live in a fantasy world where every day Goldilocks get up, gets up, climbs on the back of a unicorn, and rides it down to meet the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny to have tea. And in that world, when a company has a pension, they just take all of the money that they put in there, and they put it into an Al Gore-style lockbox like Social Security was supposed to go into and never did, and uh, it just sits there, and it's, it's, it's locked tight. It's, it's, yeah, their money's there. You know, they, maybe they buy some government bonds with it or something you know, safe like that or get 1% interest. And the reality is the way these pension funds work and the way that in certain situations, especially like the automotive industry, uh, city government, state governments, county government pensions and things like that, the way that these things get paid out, they cannot do that. It's impossible. There's not enough money. Right, you'd have to have the, the, the tooth fairy, right? You know, tooth fairy and, uh, and and the Easter bunny and the unicorn to make this work. So, because what happens is, instead of just saying, well, you get 3% of your money into it, like some of the simple pension funds work this way. Uh, when I was working for, for Fluke through Danaher, we had a pension fund, and that's how it was. 3% of your money goes in a pension fund. Uh, you have a three-year vetting. Once you've been there three years, you're entitled to all of your pension. That's what you get. There's no interest on it. There's no interest accrued. It's just they put 3% aside for you, and you're guaranteed that 3% back. That's pretty easy to manage because they just put it into your salary. The employer just says, my employees cost me 3% more than I say they do. And I put this money over here and I can make a low interest rate on it like buying T-bills or something like that. I can skim that back into the company and I can make sure that the money is there for my employees. 
But a lot of employees aren't happy with that. They want to make a pension for the rest of their life. Not just get a fixed dollar amount that they can do whatever they want with. So we have these deals where I get 50%, 60%, 80% of my salary forever. And unless your employee is the federal government who can print money to, to make good on it, the money's got to come from somewhere. So what do these pension funds do? They have to risk that pension money. They have no choice. Because inflation, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And because the union or whoever negotiates a higher thing next year. So they go in and they buy things like stocks and ETFs and funds. And they buy mortgages because that seems like the safe place to make a good return. So all of these pension funds have bought into these mortgages that went tits up. Whoops. But now what they're saying is, what's going on right now for those who don't know, is the banks have been like foreclosing on all these properties without even like reading the paperwork. Like the guy just sits there and just foreclose, next folder, foreclose, next folder. Don't even look at the files. And these banks were selling these mortgages all over the place. And now these fund managers that, like, let's say, manages the pension fund for the city of Dallas is going back and saying, hey, wait a minute. We bought into this mortgage mess and we lost. And that was all good and well. But now we find out that you didn't even transfer the paperwork properly. So that means that we had a forcible and illegal contract with you. Because you didn't have the right to sell us the, uh, the, the, the security because you can't prove that it was really yours in the first place. We'd like our money back, please. Whoops. So this leaves all the banks looking down the barrel of billions of dollars. But there's a bigger hole here that no one's talking about yet. What does this mean if you are getting your house foreclosed upon? This, and I talked about this two years ago and said this was a risk and this could happen. And this might very well the thing that would kick a rock and all the lawyers come out from underneath the rocks. And the lawyers go out and start class actioning this shit for people that have been foreclosed upon. Hi, my name is Jack Spierko. Your bank is foreclosing on me. I'm taking you to court against the foreclosure proceedings. I would like to prove, I would like you to prove conclusively that you have the right to my property. I would like to see all documentation every time my mortgage is transferred hands, conclusively showing a trail from the person that I originally mortgaged with, which was Wells Fargo, to whoever the hell you are. I want you to prove that you have the rights to my property. And if they can't, they can't foreclose because they don't hold the mortgage. Billions? How about trillions? How about every American out there in foreclosure would have the opportunity, not necessarily, because sometimes they're going to go, here's the documents, the judge is going to go, get out of your house. But every American having a plausible case of deniability that's being foreclosed upon. And people actually taking the steps that are not in default of determining that the bank can't prove it, and then going in default and daring them to throw them out. I mean, there's... There's a huge powder keg here. Um, overall, I don't think it's going to blow up that way. I don't think the government will allow it to happen. I think they'll get as totalitarian as they have to on this in this. And in this case, it might be one of the times where we kind of, I hate to say it, need it done. If we allow that to happen, you'll see the economy explode in a day. Really. I mean, it'll totally, the real estate market is not destroyed right now. It's corrected to proper values and undervalued in some areas. This could absolutely blow it. There could be no money available for anybody to buy, no way for anybody to sell, no confidence left in a real estate market. They might have to, they have to, I, I don't even know what would happen if it totally unkegged, which is why they're not going to let it happen. I think this is going to be made a lot to do about nothing. 
I think they're going to saber rattle about the pensions and show how much more the pensions are at risk because they want a private, they want to uh, public bring the private pensions into public control, including like the city and county and stuff. Like it says, that's not government; that's local government. The federal government wants to privatize the pension system in the United States. They want to get their hands on everything, and I think they'll use this as an opportunity to try to do that. Be wary of that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Okay, this next one is interesting. Comes from Ray. Ray says, "How is financing land, second mortgage, vacation home different from a primary residence?" I've been watching available property in North Central Pennsylvania. I won't give any more information. That he gets pretty specific. Uh, several came across my search criteria, Realtor.com, so I looked into what it would take to make the purchase. I was expecting similar requirements of those needed for a primary residence, but found out it's quite a bit different. To start with, the requirement is 40 to 50 percent down. That certainly narrowed my price range. I've also heard there are alternative sources of loans for this kind of purchase, like a farm loan. I also caught up with the show, started listening on a podcast in February with number one, and I'm up to 500. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Ray. Well, Ray, thanks for listening that long. First of all, um, the numbers you're getting of having to have 40 to 50 percent down to finance second property is not because it's a second property. It's because of your situation. It's because of your first property's financing and your income level and the lenders being more skittish right now about lending money on property. Uh, with messes like we just talked about, and they're saying based on how much money you have, how much money you earn, and how much money you owe, the only way we're going to give you more of a loan is for you to come up with 40%. So if you want to buy a $100,000 property, you're going to come up with 40 grand before we're going to touch you. If your primary residence was paid off, you would get the same terms you would get based on your income level, in fact probably better than anybody else. This is based on your credit. This is based on so many things that are specific to you. When I bought my second property, we put 10% down. We had dead solid credit, and there's the other thing. Based on income levels, we were qualified for a mortgage far higher than we bought. We bought 20%, 25% of what we qualified for, based on income. Based on when you go see the loan officer, he goes, I'll give you $695,000. I'll give you as much money as you want, man. You got good income levels, good credit. Here you go. You want six hundred grand? We'll give you. We said no. We'll take a hundred and twenty, please. So, it, it, when you look at financing housing, right? It's really like you take all the mortgages and put them together, and it's based on that. So, if you owe two hundred thousand dollars on your house you live in, and you want to borrow another hundred. And you don't qualify overall for three hundred, then they're going to make you make up the difference with 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 capital up front, and they're going to be stricter on that now than they would have been five years ago. But if you own a hundred thousand dollar house with a hundred thousand dollar mortgage on it, and you have enough of an income level that you could go out and buy a first home, sell that one and buy a first home for two fifty, and you want to buy a hundred, they'll give you pretty easy terms: ten, twenty percent. So it's about your income level and your current debt load and your credit score that is working against you right now. That said, if you have to save up 40%, start saving your ass off. But it might not be the right time for you to do this yet. You might be better off taking the 40% you would save up, using 30 of it to pay down your existing loan, and then being able to, you know. But I'll tell you what, buying a second home when you're still deeply into the first one. I, I, you guys got to be careful with this stuff. I always say find a second piece of property. Be smart about it. 
If you are deeply in debt on your first home, it's not time yet. If you're okay with your first home, but you still have a mortgage on it, and you're in this situation, now it's time to start looking at ten to $30,000 pieces of land only. And then going from there. Building a, a shed on it or something. Right? It's not time to go out and buy a second home for grand when you're in that situation. It just isn't. And in my case, we went and bought a second home for $74,000. Living in a primary residence at $120,000. So it's not like we were... So if you look at that, and you, if you think about that, that means that the total value of property mortgaged was about $305,000, or $205,000. For a family that they would have given $600,000 to in a mortgage. And we said, no, thank you. So we were only borrowing in total a third of what we would qualify for, and we went 25% down on the Arlington house and 10% down on the Arkansas home. So it's it's all about how much you're actually buying in these situations and all the other things that relate to you. Next one comes from Octavian. Octavian says, I've been listening to the show on a regular basis since episode 300, currently catching up on old episodes. Thank you for including me in the video. I was the guy with the little fishing with the fish with the little fish wearing a life jacket. Okay, I remember him now. He's the guy who was cooking the fish over the fire. Uh, that was really nice of you, and the whole video is awesome. Uh, what do you think of bikes as a survival prep and biking in general as a skill? There's a few shit at the fan, fan scenarios, such as oil shortages, high gasoline prices, EM, EMP, that could make case for owning a good bike. I know how to fix it if something breaks. Uh, and having the skills to ride it efficiently. Bikes are used in developing nations instead of cars and animals. Uh, you can carry a lot of weight on a bike, and you can relative to what you can carry without a bike. I was recently in Cuba, and the beach vendors carried all their wares on bikes. They stopped at every hotel, assembled merchandise, and the bike turned into an impromptu shop. Thanks again for all your hard work. Octavian, man, I'd like to hear more about being in Cuba. That might have been interesting. Um, yes, and with caveat, bicycles are great on relatively flat ground, not necessarily dead flat, but you know, trying to ride a bike up into the Rocky Mountains is going to be difficult. If you're a world-class athlete, you can pull that off, I guess, and you still are going to be limited there. I mean, I've seen guys in these, like, uh, like the Tour de France and stuff, where on the uphill, you could walk past them, because but they have to stay on their bike. They can't get off and push. You could get off and push, you know, and you could coast down the other side because you're not in a competition. So bikes are great. I think that they're a great overall transportation method. We own, um, my, my wife and I both own mountain bikes. We, we go out a lot. We don't go out as much around here as I think we would if we would, we would move up to Arkansas because there's a lot more interesting places to ride up there. Let's put it that way. In a lot of societies in America, the way that our cities are built and our streets are built and how spread out everything is, it's not really made for people to ride bikes. It's made for cars and that makes it dangerous for bicyclists. But I do think it's a great thing. As a skill, I think you should know how to, I think every, if you don't know how to ride a bike, go learn how to ride a bike. You should have learned that when you were a kid. Uh, and bike riding is like, like, you know, one of those things they say that you never actually forget how to do. I don't know, I don't know if anybody that's been, you know, ever knew how to ride a bike and then couldn't ride it again. I do think there's some, some reason to maybe learn to be a little bit more proficient with a bike. And I don't just mean about distances, but I mean about certain skill sets we see kids doing. You know, things like basic bunny hops and stuff like that, being able to get up over a curve without getting off the bike and things like that. I, uh, if you're going to mountain bike and get off on, on, you know, off, off pavement trails and stuff like that, some of that stuff's mandatory. You're going to end up hurt with negotiating certain obstacles. So I'm cool with that as well. I just would say don't rely on it 
as it's going to solve all your problems. If you're down to having to use a bike without choice of having a vehicle, and this is not substituting, you know, I'm going to ride my bike to work in the cool part of the year. Fine, great, go do it. But if you're down to a point where there is no car and I'm stuck with nothing but a bike, we've got some bad stuff ahead of us in that situation. Um, because somebody has to bring all that food to the supermarket. See, and that's what gets me with like the people that think they're saving a polar bear with a bicycle. Well, I've reduced my energy footprint and my carbon footprint and blah, 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 and I can ride to Kroger. Yeah, how do you think the swordfish that you purchased tonight got to Kroger? How much fossil fuel went into running the boat to go out and catch the swordfish, getting the guys to the boat so that they could go catch the swordfish, getting the swordfish from the boat to the processing plant, having the swordfish being processed into small bite-sized nuggets, you know, your nice little swordfish steak, Shipping it to a wholesale distribution facility in your state, thereby uh, linking into another distribution system and bringing it to your local branch of government uh, or your local branch of, of supermarkets, and then you went down there on a bicycle. How much have you reduced the carbon footprint, which is mythical anyway, on that piece of swordfish? Now, does that mean you shouldn't do it as an environmental measure? No. That's great. Everything we can do to stop real pollution, we should do. And there is real pollution that comes from using fossil fuels. It's just not carbon dioxide. right? So bike your brains out. Have fun with it. Use it wherever it makes sense in your life. Definitely learn the skill. If you're going to own a bike, own a good bike. Don't go buy a $75 piece of crap from Target or Walmart. Get a good bike. Learn to maintain it yourself like this guy was talking about. And ignore the polar bears and focus on everything else that actually matters. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next question. Uh, this comes from Rich. Rich says, Hi Jack, I was wondering where the term ass clown came from. Did you make it up? Did you pick it up in PA, Florida, or the Army? I never heard it until I started listening to TSP. I use it all the time now. I reserve it specifically for politicians and bad drivers. <laughs> cool. Um, no, I did not make up the term ass clown. I don't really know the actual origin of the word ass clown. I do know that the first time I ever heard the term ass clown was in the movie um, Office Space. And uh, there's a part where there's a guy in there. There's three main characters. Uh, one is, uh, is, is the main character. There's another guy that's his good friend named Michael Bolton. And um, every time he says his name, people are like, oh, that's a great name. And he's like, it was a great name until that no-talent ass clown started releasing platinum records or whatever it was like that. So that's where I first heard the term was in the movie Office Space. Um, I don't hear it a lot outside of my own circles where I've made it kind of a catchphrase, I guess. Um, but that's where it came from. I did feel ripped off by the movie Iron Man 2. And if you've seen Iron Man 2, you might even have missed it. One thing I never heard done by anybody anywhere in the world was to refer to our politicians, specifically a senator or a president, as an ass clown. And in Iron Man 2, there's a point where uh, you know the hero is in front of the, the, the Senate being grilled. And they get into a big confrontation, and eventually he has to leave. And he's like, I tried to deal with these ass clowns. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I feel like the writers from Iron Man must listen to TSP or something. But no, I didn't make it up. That's where it came from. Next question. Uh, this comes from Scott. Scott says, what is your take on NRA's endorsement favoring incumbents? I ask because, because constituents in my congressional district have the opportunity to replace an A-rated incumbent with another A-rated candidate who has a decent chance of winning on November 2nd. I will be casting my vote for the candidate who has a less 
who has total less political experience than the incumbent and has ten, who has 10 years of representative, uh, spent not really accomplishing anything. I seem to remember seeing uh, something about NRA endorsements favoring incumbents with good grades. Is this because they tend to have more of a record to grade? Um, and I can leave the rest of his question off because I can answer that pretty easily. <clears throat> First of all, understand whenever you look at a grade for the NRA for a candidate, they're, they're, that's a one-issue thing. And to me, it's a very important issue. And if you have a D on the Second Amendment, you're not getting my vote no matter what. All right. But the next thing is, well, how much opportunity will this candidate have to, you know, influence anything to do with the Second Amendment? I mean, if they're running for county commissioner. I really don't care what their stance on, on the Second Amendment is. U.S. Congress or Senate, I, I care. Governor, I care. Things like that. Mayor of a city, I care. So. Um, take it relative to the position and what influence they're going to have. But as far as why does the NRA favor an incumbent, let's say I have two guys that are A-plus on the, on the Second Amendment. Just absolutely stellar. They say all the right things. They seem to do all the right things. Both of them are NRA members. Um, but one has been in service in, in some form of government for eight years. And in eight years... Every time a vote has come up, they've actually cast their vote based on what they say. The other guy, I have every reason to trust him, but he's never been tested. And this is why they favor incumbents. And I don't know that they truly favor incumbents, but um, it would make sense that they did. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just telling you the way it works. Because if I'm running against somebody that says they have my exact same stance on an issue, And on this issue, we don't disagree. And a voter says to me, Congressman Spirko, why should we trust you over your opponent on the Second Amendment? I'd say because I've had the opportunity in serving you 28 times to vote on issues directly affecting your Second Amendment rights. And in all 28 times, I've come down on your side. I've put my money where my mouth is. I'm not saying this guy running against me is a bad guy. I'm just saying we know what he says. We're not sure what he'll do. You know what I say. And you've seen what I'll do. So on this issue, I think you should side with me. Hey, maybe I could be a good politician if I didn't hate politicians. Um, but that's that's really my why on that. Okay, this next one is a really big story, and it came from a lot of you, so I won't even say who it came from. I got, I got about 20 of these. When you guys haven't heard about this yet, here here you'll you'll understand why. There's a report out um, that Monsanto has purchased XE services. Uh, XE being the, um, actually being Blackwater. And um, they changed their name from Blackwater to XE for a public relations purpose because Blackwater got so much bad press over abuses in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, came on the world scene with that. Blackwater, now XE, is the largest private security force in the world. Uh, they work under the control of the United States government in a lot of situations, but they are for hire. This report has come out, and it basically, I'll read to you, this is on Before It's News, and it says a report by Jeremy Shihill, Sandhill in uh, The Nation, Blackwater Black Ops 9-15-2010, revealed that the largest mercenary arm in the world, Blackwater, now called XE Services, clandestine intelligence services, was sold to multinational Monsanto. Okay, here's the thing so far on this. When I actually go and look up um, that article, by so this article that's being sourced here, I'm not saying this is true or not true, I'm saying I can't confirm this yet. 
Anyway, when I look up this article, I'll put links to both articles today. Uh, this is called Blackwater Black Ops by Jeremy Sandhill, and it's on The Nation, which is the exact article that the Before It's News article is sourcing. I don't see anything in this article that says that Monsanto actually purchased um, uh, um, XE. What I see is one of the most incendiary details about the documents is that Blackwater, through total intelligence, uh, sought to become the intel arm of Monsanto, offering to provide operatives to infiltrate activist groups organizing against multinational biotech firm. So I can see there's a lot of collusion here, but I cannot find anything that I can confirm that says the deal actually got done. That Monsanto actually ponied up money and purchased Blackwater or purchased a division of Blackwater or even a record of where they've been hired under a contract to do anything specific yet. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm asking for your help. Instead of all these blog posts about it, if you can find a confirmation that this purchase happened, please let me know. I'm going to hold off on what it means to me if they've done it until I confirm it. Because I've been burned by believing reports before without confirming them in early in the show, you know, back when I very first started and I was new at this, and I've learned not to do this anymore. I've learned that I don't report that something happened or commented on what it means uh, if I'm going to speculate, I'm very clear on speculation. I don't know what's happened here. Because when I read this article from Mr. Scahill, S-C-A-H-I-L-L, however you say that name, Scahill, I guess, it doesn't say what the other article says it says. Not in, in my reading of it. I'm going to dig deeper into this. Um... I'm going to, you know, there's things like there might be an interest. Or I'm going to dig deeper into this. I ask you to do the same thing for me. Obviously, if Monsanto owns and controls the largest private army in the world, we've got a real problem. The key is, I'm not sure that's happened yet. Now, to me, since Monsanto is a public company and trades public stock, if they've actually acquired a company and made a financial transaction with them, they're going to have to be upfront about this. And the fact that I don't see anything about that yet, in fact, I've seen at least one denial, but it didn't deny the purchase, it denied this pre-ordered thing where they, they said they wanted to like investigate things for Monsanto. Monsanto said, we didn't do that. We didn't hire them to do anything. Whether they asked to do it or not doesn't matter. We didn't, we didn't do it. We didn't hire them. So, I don't know. But before we go nuts on this one, let's find out if it's true or not. You guys let me know. Please don't send me the two articles I'm posting. Please go look at them before you start sending me articles. I know those articles are there. I'm looking for hard, credible confirmation that the purchase occurred or did not occur, one or the other. Uh, let's take a couple more and wrap up today. Interesting question. I guess this is one like I'm being asked to settle an argument, and I don't know if I can settle the argument. Let me just tell you what I think. Mike says, um, uh, help me out, Jack. I'm looking for a good northeast dense woods deer gun and loving the Remington 870 tactical with removable choke. See link, for example, at the end of this. So he gave me a link. Gave me a link to the 870 Tactical, which I'm familiar with. Nice gun. And the particular model he has is pretty nice. It's the one with the uh, the ghost ring sights and all on it. And the email that he sent continues. Um, what's wrong with it? The jackasses at the local gun stores won't even talk to me about telling me that's a tactical gun, not a hunting gun. Really? It's an 18 and a half inch barrel that will get you around in the heavy woods just fine. It's a 12 gauge and has a removable choke that I assume can be swapped for a regular hunting chokes. 
The only potential problem I can see would be round capacity, 7 or 7 plus 1, but I can't find any reference to any hunting law in my state, Maine, about round count on non-semi-autos except for migratory bird. Am I missing something, or are the gun store guys? <clears throat> Thanks, Mike. And uh, it says, don't use my email address on the show, please. Dude, I never use anybody's email address on the show. Uh, here's the thing. It's probably a good deer gun. And I don't know why you give a damn what the people at the gun store are telling you. Uh, And I don't know why they care what you plan to do with it as long as you don't plan to go out and rob a bank or shoot somebody with the damn thing. They, if they want $469, which is the price on the, uh, on the, uh, website you sent me, which may not be the same price they're selling it for, and you're willing to give them $469, if they are businessmen worth a damn, they should shut their mouths and say, thank you, sir. Fill out the form and here you go. Take your gun and go on. Um, it's a 12 gauge shotgun. If you're going to use a 12-gauge shotgun to shoot a deer and you're going to put a slug in it, it's going to do the same damn thing whether it's black with an extended magazine or not. Um, on the magazine capacity issue, I don't know the laws in Maine for state game laws. I would call your local game warden and ask, is there a capacity limitation for shotgun hunting or hunting deer in general with a shotgun at any time in the state of Maine? And if so, what is it? And also, sir, are there any times at which... Uh, migratory game birds overlap big game season, which probably do not, just to cover your butt, where if I were out in the pursuit of deer with a shotgun with slugs, I could inadvertently be seen as pursuing um, game birds due to the fact, because geese are game birds, it might go late in the season, due to the fact that I'm carrying a shotgun. Is there any need for me whatsoever if I'm going to use a pump shotgun for deer hunting in the state of Maine to restrict my capacity? If he tells you no, get his name and the time you called. Okay. If he says yes, ask him what the restriction is, and it's usually it's usually three total capacity. Most likely, that gun, even though it's tactical, is going to come with a plug in it that's going to restrict the capacity, even with an extended magazine. If it does not, you can easily take a piece of wooden dowel, measure it out, measure it out, and cut it, insert it into the tubular magazine, and restrict the capacity yourself. Is this the perfect shotgun for deer hunting? Dense woods, short-range shooting, 50 yards or less, it's pretty damn good. Ghost ring sights are beautiful for that. Um, it's going to be quick action, short, uh, easy to shoot. Now, here's the thing. You got this removable choke, and you can put in one of those chokes that's designed for rifled slugs. It gives a little bit of spin at the end. Uh, or you can put in like a cylinder choke at the end that just leaves it open, or you could fool around with that a little bit. You could look at even using it with very short range hunting with buckshot with a little bit more constricted choke. But is it as good as if the rifle was a fully rifled barrel for shooting sabo slugs? Probably not, but that doesn't sound what it's like you're, what you're looking for. So what's the difference between this gun and kind of a, 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 a 870 setup for the deer hunter? It's got an extended magazine on it, and it's black, and some of the ones that are for the deer hunter are black. It's the same gun. You're right. The guys at the, the, the uh, gun shop are ass clowns, but to be fair to them, they may be covering their ass. They may think it's funny that you want that, and they're not sure what you're going to do, and they're just like, you know, go on. But here's what I've learned about most people at most gun stores. Most of them are idiots. Most of them are ass clowns. I'm serious. If you go to like the major sporting goods stores and all, like your Academy and Walmart and stuff, most of the people they put behind the gun counter don't have a clue what the hell they're talking about. 
And a lot of the guys that own their own gun stores, they know more, but they're just arrogant assholes. Now, I don't want to put everybody that owns a gun shop down, because there's some great guys that own gun shops, and when I find a great guy that owns a gun shop, it's a pleasure to do business with him. But there was a gun shop, for instance, in Pennsylvania. It was at an Army-Navy store, and they had kind of their own shop in the back. And I would go back there, and the one day I was back there looking at a shotgun, it was one of the, the simple single-shot uh, NEF H&R um, partner shotguns. And I cocked the hammer. And he said, don't do that, you could break it. I said, what? He goes, you could I said, you're going to tell me you're selling guns that are such pieces of shit that because I cocked the hammer, I could break it? I don't think I need to buy any guns from you. Here you go, buddy. Take it back. I mean, this guy wanted me to handle the gun and look at it, not open it, not clear it, not cock the hammer, not anything. And by, before you ask, I actually broke the barrel, looked through it, and then brought the hammer back. Now, if he had been an idiot and thought that, you know, dropping the hammer on an empty, uh, empty chamber, was dangerous and said, don't pull the trigger. I think he's wrong, but I understand, because that's a big myth. It's a myth, by the way, folks. It's a huge myth. Won't hurt anything. Won't harm a damn thing. Uh, dry firing, no worries. Um, but if he believed that was fine, he literally didn't want me to cock the hammer back because, in his words, it could break it. He didn't want people to pump to clear a pump shotgun because it might damage it. You know, and I know some of you guys like that sell at gun shows that everybody that comes by wants to pick the gun up, work the action, and, and start wearing blue off it and everything like that. I was seriously in this place to buy, and this is a small local gun shop, and this guy was an arrogant ass. And a lot of the information he gave out was completely false, completely wrong. You know, if you shoot somebody with a 45, they just fall over every time. Really? <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, so just never take too much slack from anybody in a gun shop. And if they give you too much slack, go somewhere else, buy the same gun from someone else. And let them know you did it because they're a jackass. So I would go buy this. If you want this gun, I'd go buy it. If you can afford it, you're not going to put it on MasterCard or whatever. I'd go buy it and I'd go back by the shop and say, hey, you know what? I just bought a beautiful shotgun, just like that one over there. I was going to buy it from you, but you told me not to. So I went and bought it from somebody else. Let people learn from their stupidity. Don't be too arrogant about it, but I, I really wouldn't have a problem rubbing a little bit of salt in that wound because you're trying to give these people money and they don't want to deal with you because they have a differing opinion on something. There's absolutely no reason any 12-gauge shotgun isn't sufficient for deer hunting. You know, if you were out there with a bayonet model or something, you know, a tactical trench gun with a bayonet, come on, dude, don't be a dumbass. But this gun doesn't look out of place in the deer woods at all. For those that doubt it, I'll put a link to the gun. You can take a look at it. You know, about the only other caveat with a tactical shotgun that you might have to look at is the length of pull. If you have a short stock and you're going to try to use that for precision shooting like you do with hunting versus short-range tactical situations, um, especially a deer that's running or something like that, and any time with a shotgun, when you have too short of a length of pull, you don't get the right cheek weld in a, a hunting stance versus kind of the heads-up tactical stance, and that can be an issue. I think the length of pull on the on the gun you're looking at, though, is uh, is about the same as, as every other stock that's on a full-size version. I don't think it really has a reduced length of pull. It's reduced the overall length of the gun by reducing the barrel length. That's just the only other thing I can think of to consider for anybody making the same choice. 
Last question today. How can you help people take the next step on a matter when they have a personality trait that, that they need the problem to punch them in the face before they take action? It's from Doug. Doug says, background, my wife is a very reasonable, logical person that understands logic of things like gun ownership and concealed carry, but has a mental block that says no even to the idea of me carrying, and I don't think she means him carrying. I think she means she won't carry herself. She has accepted that I will carry, but not even carry pepper spray. She does have the concern of losing her job as she's a teacher, and the regulation on pepper spray varies, but dismisses even utilizing a quiz disconnect feature the spray I bought her has and leaving the spray in the car when going into school. As always, thanks for your show and answering questions, Doug. Okay, Doug, first thing, um, I don't think that anybody should go around completely unarmed, and I think that your wife should listen to you, and I think that she should become at least proficient with pepper spray, and if she can't bring it into the school, fine, but it should be in her car and everywhere else that she goes. That said, gun, pepper spray, knife, club, bat, anything that's a weapon. If the person carrying it isn't going to be confident with it, isn't going to assert themselves with it, isn't going to learn how to properly use it, isn't going to manifest in themselves the ability and the fortitude to use that weapon, they're better off without it. It is more A person that is timid with any means of defense, it is more likely that it will be stripped from them and used against them than they will deploy it effectually. So, how do you get your wife on board with this? You have to ask her why she objects to carrying the pepper spray in the first place. And you have to do the one thing that husbands have the hardest time doing in these types of situations with their wives. Once you ask the question, you have to make your mouth the size of a BB and your ears the size of elephant's ears. You have to shut up and you have to listen. And you have to actually hear what she says and what she's not saying. And my gut is what she's not saying is I don't want to believe that I live in a world where I can be harmed. And that most of the objections that you're trying to overcome aren't her actual objection. I could get fired from school. Well, here's a quick disconnect. Leave it in the car. Well, I could forget to take it off or take it to school. And somebody could see it and I could get in trouble. Well, fine. Take the can and put the can in your car. At least have it in your car at all times. Well, you know, then maybe they would, might look at my car. You see, so now you're trying to overcome the objection that is the, that is the false objection. The real objection is... Doug, I don't believe we live in a world where I'm at risk. So now, now you have to start thinking. Do you want to start trying to tell your wife, oh, you are at risk? Oh, they're going to get you? That's not good either. But what you have to have is that very logical side of your wife. You have to have a logical conversation about the fact that, look, this is the world that we live in. And that you are, don't say you're a target because you're a woman. Because that is going to blow up in your face. You're a target, I'm a target, we're all targets at all times to people that would mean to do us harm. And it is incumbent upon us to do whatever we can so that we can protect ourselves and protect others. Put it into the context that will make sense to her, to protect others around her. You may end up in a situation sometime where it's not just you that's in danger, but other people that it's in danger. And you'll wish that you had some way to fight back. And it's not just you that's going to suffer, but it's everybody around you that's going to suffer because you're not strong enough. Because you haven't empowered yourself. But I wouldn't beat this up every day because you're going to screw your marriage up if you do. You have to have a conversation about reality. But I'll tell you the other side of it. My wife worked as a caseworker for Salvation Army in Pennsylvania in a seedy side of Allentown. And Allentown has a pretty nasty side to it. And they had all these people coming in. A lot of 90% were just people that needed help. 
But then there were some weird people she would tell me about that would demand help, say stuff like, I'm a taxpayer, you have to help me. Well, we're not from the government. We don't get tax money. That's not what we do, and you don't qualify and get out of here. And um, Eventually, and she worked in, I went down and saw her, and when I saw where she was working, I was pissed. They had her and one other woman, like you went around this corner and down this hallway, and they were behind a counter, but there was really no way out to the rear. The only way you could get out was to come out to the front, so they were cornered back there, and the, the, the guy that was there, this major that ran the, the facility, and all the other people were like in a different office sequestered away from the two caseworkers. So they were literally cornered by every single person that came in there. And I said, well, this is what you can do. You can get a permit and a gun, and you can be armed in this situation, or you can quit your job. Those are your two choices. I, I hope you make one soon, because if you don't, I will make it for you. Because you are dealing with a segment, there's no risk, and this went on for a couple days. And you know what happened? A guy showed up in there that was acting really weird, carrying a bag, like one of those shopping bags. And one of the, the, she ended up able to get the other girl out while she was talking to this guy. She went and got the major. The major came, and a couple other people, and they got this guy, and they escorted him the hell out. And she said, I just didn't feel right about this guy. And inside his bag was, guess what, a great big freaking butcher knife. Alright? That's not a made-up story that really happened. If I could ever get my wife on the show, she could tell you that happened. That was the end of being unarmed for her. So you can tell your wife stories like this a little at a time. But you have to understand what the real objection is. And my gut, and I'm probably right, is the real objection has nothing to do with her being a teacher and losing her job. It's about a normalcy bias to the point where she doesn't want to accept that she's at risk, or that anybody's around her at risk, or that anything is going to come and screw up this little bubble that she's placed around herself. But it happens to people every day. Maybe, maybe let her listen to my answer here and understand there are people that will harm you. And you need to be able to protect yourself. And for anybody out there that has a spouse that's telling that and you don't want to listen, listen to me. Because I've seen it happen. I, I live this world. I investigate this stuff constantly. I look at where people have been harmed because they weren't prepared. And it's not always they weren't prepared because food might run out. Or they weren't prepared because the stock market couldn't crash. Sometimes it's they weren't prepared because their fellow man was going to come up to them, put a knife in their back. And they had no way to defend themselves. And there's a point for what I call feigned compliance in a confrontation. But in a confrontation... Compliance is only to buy yourself time and to buy yourself an opportunity. At some point, you have to fight. You have to fight for your life because it's what's at stake. And a blinded attacker is pretty useless. And pepper spray is not lethal. And there's no good reason for anyone where it's legal to not be armed with at least that as a minimum. None. Absolutely zero. It doesn't make any sense at all, and anything that you say to rationalize it away is just you trying to put this bubble of safety around yourself that doesn't exist. You can walk through your entire life, live a hundred years, and never have somebody so much as put a hand on you against your will. But in one second, in one second, at the wrong time, in the wrong place, the consequences can be life-altering or even life-ending. There's no place for it. Be prepared 
to defend yourself, and that goes for everybody. And with that, it's been a long day, but I tried to do a lot of questions. This has been a great show. Remember, if you'd like your question answered, send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with a um, question for Jack in the subject line. I'll try to get you on the air. I'll do what I can. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Thank you.